This week's episode of Big Stick Energy is proudly brought to you by ONX. ONX is a backcountry guidebook in your pocket. It is an app that you can download that is easy to use, intuitive, and simple. It allows you to save maps offline and figure out exactly where you are going to go and understand the terrain to make important decisions. I'm really stoked to start using this app when it comes to Canada because something I admitted to myself in 2022 is that I feel nervous making decisions on what terrain we are going to pursue before we get out into the backcountry. Being able to navigate the terrain, to see it visually, and to make those decisions, especially as a woman or any other individual that doesn't feel comfortable in dominant masculine spaces, is freaking crucial. So this app allows you to add another resource to plan your trip process and just make you look like a certified badass to make confident and safe decisions in the backcountry. That is the ultimate goal. So unfortunately, it is not available in Canada yet. They're still navigating some information sharing laws, but it is available in the USA. So all of our USA hotties, go jump on it right now. We have a discount code out of bounds one word for 20% off a premium subscription. And you can head to their website, www.onxmaps.com to get the hookup. But yeah, learn how to plan your trip, jump on the goods and make safe decisions out there. Have a great Monday, everybody. What is up, my dudes? It is Monday and you know what that means. This is another episode of Big Stick Energy coming at you live like freaking clockwork. We are here. Um, my name's Tori Anderson. You can find me at Tori A. Alina. And I am here with Renee McCurs, my best friend for life and co-host today and every day. Um, you can find her at Renee McCurs on Instagram. We are two of five co-founders of the Womb Tang brand. And we are super proud to be bringing you this episode today on the Out of Bounds Collective. Uh, before we get started, again, if you feel like you have the capacity to leave us a review on any of the platforms, that would be super dope. It really helps us kind of get content out there and helps bring more people into the fold, sharing information. It helps link them up with other really rad uh, episodes on the Out of Bounds Collective as well. So that would be great. Um, we're going to keep this intro short and dirty today because we are interviewing one of our really good friends, Brandon Gulstein. He is a guide um, in training, working on getting his full certifications. He is also an experienced patrolman and a huge ally to women and other underrepresented groups in the industry. Today, we talk about uh, sexism in the industry. We talk about how masculinity has been really harmful to dealing with trauma, PTSD, mental health, and huge tips on how we can kind of make a more inclusive space and Brandon drops some absolutely hilarious bombs that I think everybody's really going to enjoy. We also talk about the uh, the right to a living wage that patrollers are fighting for in Vail and what that looks like, the experience that is needed to go into a job like that. And yeah, it's a very educational and rad episode. So I hope you enjoy it. Feel free to leave us a review again, and if anybody has any uh, guests that they think would add to the podcast and to have on down the line, send us a DM. We're always down to improve. We love feedback, and yeah, let's make this this year and this season of Big Stick Energy one to fuck with. Anyways, this is another episode of Big Stick Energy coming at you live in three, two, one. Brandon, aka Mr. Stoke, tell everybody who you are. You're on the podcast today, what you do, just kind of educate the people. Yeah, so my name's Brandon Gulstein. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and I am a aspirant, ski guide, mountain guide, guide person, uh, and a athlete for Wonder Alpine. Um, and I like to ski. Um, I live in Banff, Alberta, located on Treaty 7 territory, and I focus on backcountry skiing, specifically the human-powered variety, uh, both sort of ski mountaineering and then free ride on my personal time, but also just like getting people into the backcountry and helping people have rad experiences out there. Right on, right on. Um, what got you into guiding? 
What got me into guiding? Uh, summer camp when I was a kid, for sure. Really? What summer oh, camp? I went to Camp Chief Hector as a oh, kid. fucking right. So did I. Renee, did you go to Camp Chief Hector? I don't know if I ever went, but I know where it is. I, I know I know the place. <laughs> okay. Well, shout out to Camp Chief Hector. That shit was the bee's knees. Yeah. So I, I fully had Stockholm Syndrome from Camp Chief Hector as a kid. I was a big, well, I still am a big time nerd, but back in the day, that was, that was it. And when I was in my early teenage years, my mom decided to send me to Camp Chief Hector and I did it and I said, I hate it and I'm never doing anything like this again. And then I went back the next year and then I said, you know, that was like a little bit better, but uh, no, thank you. Not for me. Then I came back the next year and then this was like a 15 day backpacking trip. And I was like, oh, wow. Like that was actually quite a bit of fun. But, you know, to go next year would mean doing a 45 day canoe trip. Um, and you have to like apply for that and I won't get in. So uh, I'm not going to do that. So I applied for the canoe trip and got in and did it. And that was sort of the catalyst or part of the catalyst to get me into the uh, outdoor professional community. I was so inspired by my early mentors and the impact that they had on me on those trips that I wanted to be able to hopefully do that for people down the line. And that's what kind of pushed me into wanting to work in the outdoors. Uh, guiding was brought to me by bored Google searches and grade 12 science class when I wasn't paying attention. And I discovered that like alpine climbing and backcountry skiing were sports that people could do. And I was like, this is sick. I want to do that. And so then I found out I can get paid oh. to do it. I was like, that's, <laughs> you're kidding me. This is awesome. And it's kind of been down that track since day one. First of all, it's dope that that was your passion at that age. Cause you weren't just playing Minecraft like the less, the, like the rest of us, you know, skid marks trying to pass through school <laughs> but also i just looked up stockholm syndrome it's like psychological condition of a victim who identifies and empathizes with their captor or abuser and their goals <laughs> so yeah. I, was like, I was like that that like definition relative to state camp chief hector i was like all right i i vibe with it it's okay i don't know if i would put it in like psychological <laughs> abuse but yes I, I was you. conditioned for sure. Yeah, you're conditioned to like want to be outside and also to be paid for it. That's like the dream. Work in the outdoor yeah, industry and much. actually make money. <laughs> yeah. Speaking no. of segue into patrollers not making a living wage. Huh. Let's spill the tea. Let's talk about it. Because getting paid to be outside in the outdoors, you know? Yeah. So for the last four-ish years is an asterisk on that. I've worked as a professional ski patroller here in Banff. Um, and it's it's a big job. Like Patrol is the job title, but in reality, what that job encompasses is a lot more nuanced and a lot more involved than what people perhaps realize, or at least there's maybe public perception of. I think a lot of people think it's just skiing fresh tracks and then also being there when people get hurt which yeah of course is an element of the job but there's a whole lot of excess that comes along with that um and a lot of education and training that goes into getting to the point where you can actually comfortably do these jobs so yeah there's there's definitely a discrepancy within the wider outdoor industry across probably everywhere. Like I can't speak for European resorts or um, in Asia or South America, I've never worked at them, but at least within North America, there's the assumption that, hey man, you get paid to ski. Look how lucky you are. <laughs> Money? No, you don't need that. You get to ski. Think of how lucky you are. Also, if you complain, we'll fire you because there's a hundred other people lined up right behind you to do the same job. So hush, hush, let's go dig out that fence line. Um, and yeah, shout out to the wider colleagues down at Park City right now that are fighting the good fight, trying to 
change things down there. If you aren't aware of what's happening down there, it's a long and complicated history. But they unionized, and Vale's not super stoked on that. So there's been some some back and forth between high management and big business on that, and then the patrollers on the front line trying to fight to get an actual living wage and then hopefully a wage that actually represents the amount of work that these uh, folks do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I can, I can vouch for the patrol life too. Rick, I remember straight up having a conversation where I asked why we got paid so little for all the education that you have to have going in. And I was flat out told, well, we don't have to pay you more because if you don't want to work here, then someone else will take your job in an instant. They know that someone else will do the job for so cheap because you're skiing all the time. So they, they can use that to give you, I worked, I looked it up. I got 1290 an hour when the minimum wage was 1220. And this was five years ago. But what I remember is at the time someone had said that people on avalanche control were making like 18 bucks. I can't fact check that. That's just, he said, she said, but that's still not a lot of money for people who have, so much training, hours and hours of very expensive avalanche courses, and they're only getting 18 bucks an hour. Like they're not even getting 20 bucks an hour. And yeah, even if it was five years ago, like that's still not a lot of money, especially in a mountain town. That's nothing. Like selling, for example, in New Zealand, boot fitting and working at a ski shop, I was making $22 an hour and their minimum wage is $15 an hour boot fitting. Boot fitting. If somebody who is boot fitting can be paid that much, and that is also considered like a high skills or like high experience job position, somebody that's literally protecting the lives of multiple people on the ski hill every single day and needs experience in medical training, like snow safety, literally explosives. Like it's like every cool guy in a movie. Fuck. It's like, don't look back at the explosion. Like that is insane to be getting just above minimum wage. Totally. I remember last season, there was a bit of a discussion within within uh, my team that we could have quit our job and then worked as a contract tracer and gotten paid more to literally just make phone calls than to perform first aid and do avalanche control. Like I, we could go to McDonald's in town and make a similar wage which isn't to diminish other work don't get me wrong the concept of uh entry wage job not being a living wage job is disgusting no matter what industry you're in but there should be a parallel between the amount of work that you've put in on the front end to get education and stuff or at the very minimum not be taken advantage of by big businesses that say that, well, you can't complain about the uh, bullshit we put you through because other people will do it for cheaper. Yeah. So what kind of education do you need as a base to start patrolling these days? I know it was when I did it. So yeah. Yeah. So industry standard, I'd say is, I mean, it obviously varies from place to place, but typically it's your 80 hour wilderness first responder course. Uh, so that's give or take eight to $900 every, um, once and then 500 or so every three years after that. Um, then depending on whatever hill you work at, some avalanche courses are needed or required. Uh, so on a professional level, operations one, that's maybe a $2,000 price tag last time I've looked somewhere in there one time. But then there's a whole lot of extra hidden costs that come in with getting courses like that. You need to be an expert skier. You can't just rock up day one and learn how to ski. You've got to be skiing for a long time before that. And there's significant financial implications of that over the years. Like skiing is not a cheap sport. 
So you've had to be in it for a long time to get to that point. So, and then other courses like ski instructor courses are valuable, but not required, but you can throw those in there a couple extra hundred dollars per level. So you're talking probably at least $3,000 worth in courses to get in at sort of, and that's like an entry-level patroller. Like you're, you're schlepping fences at that point. You're not even trying to forecast there. So once you get into those upper levels, tack on easy, another several thousand dollars to get to that point. Yeah, that's and Yeah, there's also a, a big gear cost too, because every hill's different whether or not totally. they give you gear allowance and the amount of gloves you go through alone <laughs> is a Shout little bit wild. <laughs> but even just skis, like you're not always skiing good stuff. You're skiing all the rocky crap. No one wants to ski because that's where the fence has got to go in. And that's the safe spot where you're backing up onto and the bombs going off or whatever. Like, right. Yeah. Your skis get wrecked. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, like getting a, what, you need probably like 90 to 107 ski, lightweight for ski touring. So you're looking at like anywhere from 600 to $800 and then a touring binding so that you have accessibility. That's going to be anywhere from like 500 to $800 plus a touring boot. That's like 16. Yeah, that'd be over, you're over two grand at that point just to even have like the hardware under your feet for it, not including any of the medical equipment or a transceiver. If they offer any of that stuff through ski patrol and some mountains do, like you said, like if you think about the cost of that and the skill sets, like if you were to balance wage, that's absolutely insane. Both of you have experience on ski patrol. What do you think is the right, like, what do you think the right wages? What compensates that realistically, if you were to compare skill sets? Hard question. Oh, That's brainstorm. There's a lot of nuance in that one. But yeah. I'd say, just for the sake of asking the question, I'd start at at least 20. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was going to say as well. I at least 20 bucks. But that's not like, that's not, like, for, and that's, that's not that's, that extreme. And yeah. <laughs> that's like, no, very, it's not. Uh, yeah. Because you also have to bring into account, too, the potential for injury. Lots of patrollers get injured through the year. And for example, like I weigh 125 pounds. I don't care if people know how much I weigh, whatever. Um, but I would go and I'd pick up these dudes that couldn't ski down the rest of the hill and they'd be like 200 something pounds plus the weight of my toboggan. And I'm bringing them down like a blue or a green run completely by myself. No one else, just me. And I can do that because I'm a strong enough skier, but still like, there are so many things that can go wrong in that equation because it's oh, such an yeah. uncontrollable just setting and scenario. Like you hit a patch of ice, you have to throw on the brakes really quickly because people won't get out of your way. Like so much stuff can happen. There's random bumps, this, that, totally. where then you are the one getting hurt. Or, like, you're just skiing around all the time. Like, if you ski 140 days in a year, like I did when I patrolled, you might blow your knee. You might break your leg. Like, there's so many Even things that can go wrong. just a lot of just general strain on your body as well. Oh, yeah. I broke my tooth because I jumped off a cliff to a flat, to a flat landing in my patrol gear, which you're not supposed to do. And I didn't have dental insurance, so I had to figure that one out. Because you don't necessarily have health insurance when you work on ski patrol, which also sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, of course, like unseen injuries that come from years and years of working as like a first responder that is a whole nother kettle of fish within the outdoor industry. Um, and like some some resorts and operations are getting better with it, but there's a long way to go. And when you say that, you mean, I feel like you're like dancing around it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I'll start off by saying that PTSD is, in fact, something you can get from working as a first responder. And Ski Patrol does do first responder work. It's not exclusively for EMTs or military or anything like that. 
but uh, not to diminish those cases as well, but it's definitely still something that can happen. I have friends that have worked in the industry specifically patrolling for long times and have seen a lot of really horrible stuff. Even people that haven't been in the industry nearly as long have unfortunately had to deal with some pretty gnarly stuff and that definitely still affects them. And there's sort of an assumption, maybe not an assumption, but like turning a blind eye within the outdoor industry. And it is starting to shift for sure of accessing solutions to help deal with those kinds of injuries. But there is quite a ways to go and be it there say there are resources but staff don't know how to access them or if they know how to access them then resources may be limited or also just within the general culture of the workplace where staff or technicians might go not feel comfortable saying to their supervisor or boss like hey yesterday's call was messed up i need to take a couple days off i think there's a very strong team-oriented culture within these kind of jobs, which has pros and cons. And I think one side of that is not wanting to let your team down, which is admirable for sure. But the culture needs to shift in a place where to properly support your team involves taking time to take care of yourself as well. Um, And that's something I definitely hope to see shift within the course of my career. And I think it's definitely falls on the shoulder of guides and patrollers and forecasters and stuff of my generation to help kind of bring in that next era of change within the industry so that the people that I mentor down the road don't have to worry about those sort of situations. Yeah, I think one thing I wanted to point out that I really value is how you call, called it an injury because um, Renee I and I... I was going to say the same right? thing. Oh my God, we're so... It's fucking double trouble, best friend. Telepathy, that was dope. Um, but Renee and I, whether or not anyone listening knows, we have both also been diagnosed with PTSD from other experiences. Mine was sexual assault. I don't know, Renee, do you feel comfortable saying what yours was? Um, yeah, I'll, I I can talk about it as well. I mean, we don't have to go into details, but I just wanted to, a lot of people don't know that you can get PTSD from these things as well. Like a lot of people think it is a traumatic, like natural event, or it's something associated with war. And like, it can be from emotional and psychological abuse, which was part of what I experienced as well. Yeah. But it's super rad that you acknowledged it as an injury because I think that a lot of these mental health issues and these diagnoses and struggles that people have they're so invisible to the naked eye and you don't see it like if you blow your knee everyone knows you blew your knee but if you were part of a back backcountry fatality if you work on patrol and you saw something super gnarly if you're a guide and and some something happened you were responding to an avalanche anything like that like that still can be an injury and it's not as visible and it can still affect you and every single part of your functioning very, very deeply. But to acknowledging even go- as an injury, like really, I, I think it's really helpful for just like helping people understand better. It's helpful metaphorically, but cool fact, it's also like scientifically what happens to your brain, which is really cool because when you experience trauma like that, your brain rewires itself. So PTSD is basically your conscious self checking out and then you subconsciously still experience those memories. And when the PTSD is triggered, it's memories and uh, like nervous sensory feelings that come back out. So it's stuff that your brain has kept in a deep section to protect you, but it gets triggered and it's brought back out. And science shows that your brain is rewired through those traumatic experiences. So it is technically an injury, like the before and after neural imaging of it is absolutely insane. So not only is it metaphorically important, it's also scientifically accurate. Like PTSD is very much so a brain injury. It's very interesting. 
I think one of the other reasons why I like to talk about it as an injury is injuries can be dealt with. Like if you blow your knee, you can see a doctor, you can go to rehab, you can have physio, you can get back to maybe not like a hundred percent where like your stock knee was, but you can, you can still get out there and send afterwards and mental injuries or psychological injuries can also be dealt with in their own way by going to therapy and you can help start to work through those things to try and get back to where you were and so that it's no longer like as debilitating as it may be it's not just like ah well got ptsd shit guess i'm just stuck with this forever now like there are things that you can do to work through that as you guys have said before like therapy is hot so thank you preach therapy is fucking hot (laughs) but i think like like accessing those tools is also difficult right like Mm -hmm. you said before a lot of ski patrollers aren't really aware of the different resources or professionals that they could see and um like, I don't know if you're comfortable disclosing your trauma and what's happened to you in the backcountry uh, and just in your experiences with guiding and with friends. But um, like, I think maybe anybody that's experiencing these things, the the bro culture, Renee found some really cool stats about the bro culture and how like harmful it is, <laughs> can be very impeding on getting access to help. So if like you felt comfortable sharing what happened to you and accessing help, it's really important to normalize this stuff. Yeah, totally. Um, last season, I was touring with some friends and we were involved in a fatality. One of my partners fell and uh, hit his head and unfortunately did not survive that outcome, uh, despite the best efforts of myself and other partners that were there. And that definitely shifted my my view of the backcountry in a lot of ways and life itself, honestly. But Fortunately, I was able to get in and start therapy, and that was something that really helped me work through those sorts of things. Uh, I'd reached out to another professional colleague about uh, that works in search and rescue, and I'd said, hey, uh, this happened yesterday. I would like to get on top of this ASAP. Un- unfortunately, this wasn't the first fatal accident that I'd been uh sort of pulled into so i knew sort of the value of getting onto that right away and this particular therapist that i went to had access to resources through the acmg Um, there's a fund that's set up within the association for members that are struggling with mental health or need support after a like post-critical incident sort of situation Um, and I was able to access those funds like immediately and get in to see a therapist through that right away which is like huge and I think that helped immensely at the time unfortunately those services it's it's limited like that we have several thousand members in the association and I hate to say it but like accidents happen both at work and in our personal lives. So there's a lot of other people that have reason to draw upon those resources. So ultimately I decided to not use those or use them all that I was able to access because I wanted to leave that money in the fund for other members to access. I was able to get that support through family, which is so huge, but the development of those kind of resources is so key for making these kind of events more manageable for membership. And then of course, like as things grow and as culture changes to the general public as well, um, obviously this therapist isn't some exclusive guide therapist that's super useful for everybody to access regardless of their professional background. Yeah, I have some cool stats on this. Well, and I say yeah. cool, but they're not really cool. Interesting stats. <laughs> Interesting stats. 
So this is like very specific to ACMG, but um, I think like, yes, it's the guiding industry, but I think if you pulled the whole rest of the um, outdoor backcountry, it wouldn't be that far off. Yeah. But it says um, 57% of ACMG members experience mental health challenges in their professional roles. And 18% of guides and avalanche workers report no access to mental health supports. So if over half of that population experiences mental health challenges, but 20% almost don't actually know that they have access to any supports, which is really interesting that it's such a high number and and yet lots of people are going untreated or undiagnosed because they they just don't realize they have access within their own workplace totally yeah i before is this from rachel rammer's study yes she is yeah. amazing yeah so that so, i i think I think that's like 2018, maybe yeah. 2019. It says 20, yeah. yeah so a few years there. ago, maybe it's changed. Maybe <laughs> I guess you can let us know. Probably not. <laughs> okay. Um, I rem so I was at the conference when Rachel first presented that study. It was a CA conference, and you could hear a pin drop in that room. It was the most uncomfortable silence I've ever been around because I imagine that everybody in the room probably was thinking to themselves or at least silently nodding that was like, oh yeah, these these stats track. Um, I've had <clears throat> senior guides or senior professionals in the industry tell me point blank that uh, guides can't get PTSD because that, that's not real PTSD. Uh, you just gotta have a beer, talk it over and get back to work the next day was sort of along the lines of what I was told. And it's it's very challenging being new in the industry and with a desire to change that culture because of how dependent your career is to connections and mentorship and access to mentorship, where if you say to a mentor, it's like, oh, actually, no, that's, that's bullshit. Um, that's a horrible thing. And also it's just untrue. You don't want to jeopardize your access to your career by saying something like that. Like, is it, is it easier to change these perhaps archaic views and then sewer myself down the line? Or do I keep my lip shut, keep that mentorship. And then when I'm in their shoes, then to my, tail guides and junior patrollers and assistant forecasters, then I can help create a better environment. It's definitely a challenging situation to be in sort of seeing it's like right on the cusp of this sort of older generation of thinking and the new school of positive mental health status and inclusion and diversity kind of coming to butt. And I also think it's very strange how there's a whole bunch of other things that are seemingly unrelated, but also always happen to land on either side of the fence. Um, well, you know, like a pattern that you could apply to this scenario is looking at how uh, patriarchal, you know, definition definitions of what it means to be a man and that like masculine kind of culture and norms um if you apply that to masculine spaces which is the idea that sharing your feelings is seen as weakness it's feminine it's all totally. these kinds of things like um renee you should list some of the statistics that you found about the bro zone and the research that was done to see if it is an inclusive space because that that entire attitude kind of reflects the entire problem doesn't it that it's not a diversified space that people don't feel safe to talk about their feelings and at the end of the day suffering from mental health issues is like it going to the to see a psychologist or to see a counselor should be normalized. It should be seen like basic self-care routine, right? Totally. And for somebody that works in such a high risk area where they are experiencing those traumatic events, like if you actually look at the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 for PTSD, any of those would fit the diagnostic criteria. 
So like, Renee, what are those statistics to back it up? Because this is a great, I love pattern analysis. See, this, is, this works. Hit us with some numbers. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> okay, so um, in this study, Brandon, what does ACMG stand for? I'm drawing uh, a blank. The ACMG Mind. is the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. Yes. So one of the questions that they answer is, in regards to culture, what is the avalanche and guiding industry culture? So the number one answer was exclusive. And the most frequently used words to explain exclusive were bro culture, male dominated, and old boys club, which is exactly what you said. And then the other answers are actually not bad. They're professional, safety oriented, and learning and involved and evolving, which is all very great. <laughs> um, as far as is it inclusive? Eh, about 25% are coming in saying no. About 30% are, are saying that it's not diverse. And there was another stat that I found that was quite good, but I may have lost it in here somewhere. So I'm very sorry. I'll have to come back to it. But yeah, that definitely speaks a little bit on the the bro zone. Totally. I mean, I think those statistics are representative of the majority of operations um, around in Canada. Uh, I think that there's the, like the safety and, uh, sorry to re repeat the quote, it was safety oriented and professional, something like that. Yeah, professional, safety-oriented, and then the last point says learning and evolving. Yeah, okay, so with the first two points there for sure, I've definitely heard arguments on both sides. I think, yes, for sure, I think the association is, for the most part, professional and safety-oriented. Uh, definitely at least safety-oriented. I think there's some other statistics within Rachel's study that maybe professionalism isn't always our strong suit, but safety oriented. However, there's the other side of that where that's definitely been almost an excuse to gatekeep within the outdoors where, oh, I'm, I am an old school mountain guide. I know my stuff and it is, things must be done this way. Otherwise, sorry, you can't play with us, which I think there's there's another statistic down the line in that study that was mentioned that a certain number of the percentage of the membership couldn't identify certain things as being exclusive or um, like harassment or gatekeeping, stuff like that. Like they just straight up didn't know. And I think that there's a certain percentage that doesn't realize that certain attitudes towards professionalism or being safety oriented have the double-edged effect of keeping people out. Um, a little while ago, you guys spoke about picture someone who works at Home Depot. What do you think of? And so I challenge you the same thing. If you think of a mountain guide, what is the first image that comes to mind. And I think that for the cases where people don't necessarily fit that pre-described mold, um, for some reason, their technical knowledge or skill is then questioned for some reason. And I think that there's that's a big reason why we're not as diverse and inclusive as we like to think we are. I think that there's a certain assumption like oh we're climbers we're skiers like we're chill of course we're inclusive like come on and it's the mountains but deeper down i think there's a lot more to it than that definitely i think like um the whole concept of what does that person look like we love that topic and i love that you quoted that i was just like oh my god somebody was <laughs> what we said but playing that game is so freaking crucial and the concept that somebody can look or behave a certain way and fit into a job is really odd. But if you think about like 
the concept of somebody's identity. This is like a nerd marketing capacity, but anybody's identity that they, how they view themselves, how they express themselves is ultimately ultimately a, an accumulation of skill sets. It's called cultural capital. So it's like skill sets, habits, mannerisms. So kind of those presentations of personality, but also uh, the type of gear that you have, like um, any type of like commodity that you purchase, it, it signals your social status and positioning within a, a specific culture or group. So with, um, you know, within the guide industry, you have to display those norms to meet that type of masculinity that gives you credibility in that culture of like, I am masculine, feelings don't bother me. I am like able to persevere through all of these hardships. Mental health isn't a thing. I am that fucking tough. And then on top of that, having all the types of gear and somebody that can't match those kinds of things or tries to enter that space and realizes they can't meet those cultural norms, 220% they're going to feel like they're pushed out. Totally. Oh, yeah. The study says, um, so does gender make a difference in how people are treated in the avalanche and guiding profession? 60% said yes. And then I guess the part of Rachel's study that we're not really going into here is that 46% of the female respondents to the study said that they experienced gender discrimination and almost 30% experienced sexual harassment. So there is a lot of the study that goes into that side of the equation, but we're kind of only looking at the mental health aspect and like kind of culture and in this bit. Even those stats are wild. Like Brandon, how many female guides do you know or how many females do you know that are actively trying to get into this space? Uh, getting into, I can think of, like without wasting too much time trying to rack my brain, I can think of one specifically that I know that's currently getting in. No, two. And that I know that are actively guiding I know there's more. They're like there are definitely more, but I I can think of maybe like seven that I could name easily or like know personally. What about men? Like getting into probably five off the top of my head. Know the actively guiding or that I've worked with like thirty plus. See, even that says volumes. Yeah, like, it's yeah. like yeah. it's like when you this, ask the bro zone who's your favorite athlete, they can list five twenty dudes and oh, then yeah. maybe like two girls. Maybe. Yeah. It's really interesting when you consider that I mean it's sometimes hard to find data that is exactly what the segmentation is, but at least forty percent of skiers are women. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that unequal on the greater scale. I feel yeah. like the statistic exists somewhere within ACMG literature, but it's definitely not proportional No, as far as I'm aware. I remember other studies that Renee and I were looking at for uh, relative to like gender participation, sexism, all that kind of stuff, discrimination. Um, a lot of the studies concluded in the discussion that it wasn't an active representation of the attitudes and beliefs and experiences of women in guiding or in snow sports because they could not find enough women to interview to create an appropriate size sample in comparison to men. Oof. And even that statement speaks volumes. Like, Oh, yeah. That was the article we were reading about guides on Denali. Yes. And it was about gender heuristics. So that is like the decision making process and how we make decisions or assumptions based off of whether or not the guide is a woman versus whether the guide is a man. And that was what they were trying to figure out, but they only had something like seven women in the study. So they couldn't definitively say that something is a pattern or not a pattern because there just weren't enough female guides in Alaska for them to talk to compared to like the 10 times as many dudes. (laughs) See, like I think that study is really interesting because then it kind of like Brandon was saying that whole Home Depot example, like who does a guide who is a guide? What does that look like in representation? Totally. Who does it look like? And like that study 
is trying to debunk some of those assumptions and biases that we have towards people that don't fit that stereotype. But then it's, they weren't. Yeah, it, it's almost. It's interesting like because like I've I've seen this play out in front of my own eyes. We were I was at work and there was a group of guests getting ready. I was standing around in sort of the like here up room. I, this wasn't my group of guests. I was not their guide, but I was just there in case the actual guide needed any hands. Particular guide happened to be female, same age demographic as mine, but female. And one of her guests came up to me and asked me a question while she was standing right beside me. And I was like, I you want to direct your question like to the left. I'm not your guide, but they just automatically assumed that I was, which is a strange situation to be in. Try being but the woman a, in that situation. Oh, you know, exactly. It, yeah. <laughs> like, I, there's so many girls that we know who have had these experiences all across the industry, like getting boot fit or buying skis. And then the guy selling them tries to talk to like her boyfriend, who's actually a beginner and she's an expert. And it's just kind of like, excuse me? Yeah, man. That's just bananas. What is, what it is, is, it is all, wild from back that's a, a whole other battle. As a guide. <laughs> like boot fitting or like getting skis we're sell sorry selling skis and stuff in a shop both of you i'm sure have experienced this where yeah couple comes in i don't care which one's the expert which one's not but the girl's getting the gear and the boyfriend kept like interjecting like trying to like add on to every point I was saying. It's like at one point it's like, okay, hey, dude, are like, are we buying boots for you or her? Like, because these aren't going to fit you. So I think you should probably just let me do my job, and she can tell me if the boot fits or not. Like, it's it's insane. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I know. I'm, yeah, it is. I know. I'm preaching to the choir here, but. Yeah. Like that's a rabbit hole so that we go down basically every day. Yeah. I feel like that's what the entire podcast is based around. It's just like fuck. But you know, like I'm like trying oh, not man. to be a broken record, but like, can you just listen to me? Yeah. I know. Yeah. You know what I think is like an important thing to cover? Like, I mean, Brandon, you said that it's kind of hard for you for people like yourself who have more progressive views on mental health, inclusivity, all that kind of stuff playing in an old boys club. Cause realistically the guides that are passing down the knowledge and still in power in the industry are part of the old boys club. So yes. like from your perspective, for the most not part, I will, I'll just add on the caveat there that like, there are some really slick guides out there that are working to change that culture from high up in the industry. It's not like every older guide is, totally a dinosaur in regards to some things but oh yeah it exists for sure a hundred percent and like that's something that people misinterpret about intersectional feminism a lot is that we are like send all the men to like be burned by stakes we hate men everybody sucks balls but we know that's not the reality what creates a trend and what fuels the need for change is noticing that even though there are some amazing people the majority like there's still a, a power dynamics trouble, like there's still stratification, right? So, um, but we do recognize those people and we love talking about those people all the time because we've talked about that previously where cancel culture is not a thing. We need to move forward together, totally. right? So like from your perspective, we always talk about the female perspective, like what could change in the industry to make it more inclusive. But from a male perspective, experiencing how the patriarchy is harmful, how it's limiting the capability to connect with others, to create emotional relationships and have a safe space where you can process trauma. From your perspective as a guy in the industry, what needs to change to make that more inclusive? We need more women guides. Damn. Okay. Like he said it, everybody. <laughs> my job. I think we're done here. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. Sorry. Seeing it's pretty cut and dry. Like we need more female forecasters. We need more female techs, more female guides. 
Yeah. That's, that's the tea. I mean, there's a lot of studies that show like cool fact about female and male brains. Um, Men, when they have a fight or flight response, uh, I can't remember what nervous system is that Renee nurse moment. Oh, uh, oh my gosh. I always get the like sympathetic parasympathetic mixed up. I think it's sympathetic. But yeah, it's one of those two. One does rest and digest. One does fight or flight. Honestly, right. it's the thing you learn in school and it doesn't fucking matter when you're a real health care person. Well, I'm not a healthcare person. but You I just know what, what that looks like and what that looks like and how to yeah. deal with it. But Fun fact, when men go into, when they have like a fight or flight response or trauma response, they actually experience fight or flight because of the, because of testosterone, I think. But for women with estrogen or progesterone, is that what it was? I should have looked this up before I talked about, but I did be dropping this fact. This is from my brain bank. Um, So men have like a legitimate fight or flight response where women have a higher tendency to tend and befriend, which is interesting. So to emotionally connect based off of like the emotional and like hormonal experience in our brains, which is really interesting. So men immediately go to that kind of prehistoric, is that what I call it? Primitive? I just got to drink a beer about it. I'm going to drink a beer. I'm going to fight. I'm going to go ski super hard and feel the burn in my legs. I mean, girls who are listening or fuck, anybody that's dated a man. We know it's like sometimes you're beating your head against a wall. Like, tell me how you feel. So cool fact. Our brains are wired like that, but cultural aspects re like impact it, which is also interesting. And, and like the best part about having more female guides besides breaking up the straight white male, like library of guides that is the current industry is because our brains work differently there are different things we're good at or different situations we might be better at in the summer i have a privilege of working at an operation we actually have more female guides than we do men um which is super bizarre in the large uh like demographic of the industry but it also means that we have a ton of different skill sets that we can draw upon in certain like guiding scenarios which is both like culturally awesome but in terms of delivering a product to guests awesome as well rather than just like okay hi i'm brandon i'm another generic white male guide here we're going to go up the mountain today like it it's great and what is it that you're doing in the summer i work on the vf rata at mount norquay um so not the most like technically in-depth guiding but we get a lot of people who have not spent a ton of time in the mountains if at all any which is a really unique privilege to work in actually because in a lot of cases we are their first experience working with a professional guide and possibly their first experience in the mountains and i think that's a really important responsibility to have because how that experience goes for them could make or break a desire to keep experiencing the mountains. And that's a huge reason why I'm in guiding in the first place is I love the mountains. I love doing stuff inside of it. And I want to be able to share those experiences with people that wouldn't necessarily have either the opportunity or the ability to go out and do stuff. So if I can get people that normally wouldn't do stuff, they have a positive experience with me. And then that fuels a desire or a journey to go into the mountains like that's sick and super super rewarding why do you think there's more women inclusive in that summer aspect of guiding than winter um it's hard to say i think at a perhaps and this is off the cuff like two seconds of thought um the requirements for the court and bear with me the requirements for this guiding course are much less than the mountain stream in no way is that to be interpreted as women are better suited for a less technical stream of guiding it's that there are less opportunities for there to be barriers of entry 
within these more um, entry level or le less uh, intensive programs. Whereas within like the mountain stream, it's years and years of work. And while applicants may be totally suited for those conditions, there's that many more loopholes that they have to jump through. Whereas for this, it's like, okay, you've climbed and you have good people skills, like, great, come on in. Whereas like, even like gear, I've told, I've been told by mountain guides, oh, if you don't show up with at least like X, Y, Z pieces of pencil gear to your apprentice exam, like don't even consider passing. Like there's so much more, um, restrictiveness within those other streams so that's a possible hypothetical to that but it's these are these sort of entry streams are just that like they're an entry they're a stepping stone so the fact that i'm seeing more women in these entry streams could in five years or so correlate to more women in the mountain stream which is awesome yeah, for sure. Because it takes a while. Like if you're like you're talking about yeah. mountain guiding. So if we are talking about ski guiding in particular, that takes years and years and thousands of dollars of courses and experience and ski skills. Like you can't just sit there and be like, I'm going to be a mountain guide and go and do it the next year. Like you are having to commit to and like maybe you'll be able to provide like an actual number on this. But like multiple seasons in a row towards becoming a ski guide. Like it's not just a cut and dry. I'm going to do this. It's a huge commitment. Yeah. For sure. I think like, um, we're going to have to start wrapping it up quickly, but relative to not only guiding, but backcountry, like, do you have any tips to help make it more accessible? Like how can we, create not only a safe environment where people don't feel nervous to speak up, but also making them feel welcome to start getting into it. Like um, Renee came up with a really good question earlier about places you could go to ask questions as a new person. That's difficult. Yeah, totally. I think the first step would be for the collective community to remove the gigantic stick up their ass. Um, and remember that <laughs> I'm so they were all... <laughs> Oh, that remember that they were all beginners at one point too, and they all had to learn at some point as well. Um, so once they've stepped off their high horse, and they can then start to share information freely, um, I think oh that's my... a fantastic first step. I think we need to make that a meme or something. <laughs> step number one: remove stick from thy from ass. that hole. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Marcus we're, has talked about this a bit in his meant. episode with like guidebooks. It's on a map. Like it, no, your secret stash is not secret. Beta is not some coveted gem. Like you're literally just helping people be safer in the mountains. It's I don't whole... understand what the elitism is behind that. Like, okay, you toured on the other side of the valley than I did today. I saw similar stuff, but you might have seen something different. I don't understand the reason behind keeping that secret. I don't get it. Uh, the next one would be if you're going to critique, do so positively. I think that there's nothing inherently wrong with pointing out something that's dangerous. But if you say, if you just like point and scream, that's bad. And then flip off the Facebook group and disappear. Like, what? What have you accomplished? Like, are you trying to allude to some sort of backcountry mastery that you have? If you're truly so, like, an expert of your craft, explain what they've done wrong. And then they can't For, do it. That's what's funny. Yeah. Is they'll so, post the picture saying, this skin track is so dumb and you should never put a skin track here. And this is the worst skin track I've ever seen. And then someone will, like, slowly pipe in and say, I'm sorry, but like, can someone explain to me why this skin track is bad? Yeah. I'm new here. I don't really understand. And then nobody will explain. No one will tell you why it's bad. They're just going to sit there and be like, this is bad. You did a bad skin track. This, this is, you should not have done this. Like, okay. But like I say, um, 
what I say is people are quick to berate, but not to educate. Totally. So a few years ago, there was a case, I don't know, early season, somebody, it doesn't even matter. Somebody did something, somebody else took a photo and posted it in Backcountry YYC. Uh, For those of you that don't know, it's um, the Bow Valley's biggest circle jerk. Um, And there was, everybody was commenting like, oh my God, I can't believe they've done this. And there was like 30 of these comments all saying the same thing, just building on, yeah, same, same circle jerk without contributing anything. I commented and I said, Hey, like, if you'd like, this is what I see in this photo. If you'd like to learn more, like, please send me a message. Or maybe I just commented it there, but at any, the person messaged me and they said like, thank you for actually explaining this. Like I hadn't considered this aspect like I've, I've actually learned something now and they were incredibly appreciative of it and it kind of caught me off guard at the time i was like well yeah like i'm just trying to help people be safer and have a better time in the mountains i don't understand why this is a, like it's not a secret this sort of stuff but so yeah be freeing with your beta if you're gonna point out errors at least offer a solution and then three i'd say offer what you see as well be it the smallest thing of like oh like the snow was really good here or i dug a pit and i saw this it it just helps continue the conversation where it become it's the same thing we do in the professional side of of the industry everything is reported down from the minutiae to, oh my God, we saw like a size three avalanche today and it did this. And it's within that professional context of sharing everything that we as operators can build these really in-depth pictures of what's going on in our terrain and make safer decisions. I see no reason why that culture should be exclusively reserved for professionals. If anything, as professionals, we should be trying to advocate for that same system for the public. It's in the ACMG's like core mission statement is to protect the public interest in the mountains. And I think part of that is helping foster that kind of attitude for everybody else in these sports. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, one thing, this might be a shot in the dark, Renee, feel free to like bat me on this, but the whole, like, what was the statement you made about education? Uh, I said, it's a educate, don't berate. Yes. This is like in with the episode with Jay from Jay skis, for example, we talked about the concept of compensating somebody for knowledge, right? Relative to trauma and social issues. Anybody that's listening to this, I know that, you know, some conversations I've had in person about these topics, it's related back to like the, the individual who is oppressed responsibility to educate somebody if they're going to call it out in that concept it is not appropriate because um it's causing more harm to the individual where in this area it is an acquired set of skills and knowledge that somebody has paid for or gathered through their experience that is not relative to their trauma or place in society and that's why it is more equitable to share it rather than hold on to it and not just berate right? It creates a safe, inclusive space. So the concept of sharing knowledge is differentiated between both of those kind of contexts. I don't know if that was like a stretch, but I just wanted to make sure that nobody mishears that statement and applies it to any of the other things we have talked about relative to educating when someone calls something out. Totally. And I think like to further that analogy of like compensation, uh, we are professionals. If you slide into my DMs, you're more than welcome to ask me what I've seen when I go out in the mountains. I will tell you. I will not tell you where to go and I will not tell you how to manage terrain. That's something that you can pay myself or other professionals to learn how to do. But beta and conditions and stuff, that's not a skill. That's it was snowing. It was windy. Like There's no good reason for keeping these pieces of information secret or adding them as some sort of needless barrier to entry. Um, Yeah. 
All right, all right. I feel like that's a good place to leave off. So yeah. this is the point where you get to plug everyone and tell people where to find you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, you can find me on the Instagram uh, at Mr. Stoke. The um, best handle, just got to say. <laughs> I bet if anybody tried to come up with that today, you've locked it down and they're just like, God damn it. <laughs> I have received messages of people like, can I buy your handle off you? Which is so bizarre, but no, you cannot. Hold um, on to that shit. Also, yeah. activate your two-step authentication. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. we're hatched. secure. We're you secure. a hot commodity, my dude. Anyways, continue. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so you can find me at Mr. Stoke. Um, Shout out to my sponsors and all the brands that help me do what I do. Uh, Wonder Alpine, of course, much love to you guys. Um, Ski Uphill in Canmore. You guys do some serious dark magic to my boots every year to make sure that I can fit them. So thank you for that. And uh, Nerona for keeping me warm and dry. That's that's a huge thing to be in the backcountry, warm and dry. Warm and dry, warm and dry. I actually had a full meltdown the other day because I got really wet on the ski hill. That was a weird thing to say on the internet, but I <laughs> did not like it. It was just moisture everywhere. Moisture is the essence of wetness. Zoolander said that, and what the fuck? Um, <laughs> anyway, another episode done and dusted. Big, big <laughs> energy. We'll see you next Monday, everybody. Thank you so much, Brandon, for coming on. My uh, pleasure. You're a goddamn gem. Renee and I love you very much, Lee. And yeah, have a good week, everybody. Ciao.